electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. The bill is passed. The sweeping climate, health, and tax package gets through the U.S. Senate. Next steps for the Inflation Reduction Act. CNBC's Brian Sullivan today with Elon Mui. This is basically build back better in sort of a zombified form. Build back smaller. <laughs> and the bottom line for the average American with White House Council of Economic Advisors member Jared Bernstein. You're talking about a measure that's going to significantly reduce costs in some areas where family budgets really pinch. Plus the mass return to the office, but we're not the same workers we were in 2020. Harvard professor Sadal Neely. Managers should not be surprised by now what people's preferences are, what people's needs and changes are. It's Monday, August 8th, 2022. Squawk Pod begins right now. Three, two, one, his mic here. All right, good Monday morning, everybody, and welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I am Brian Sullivan, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin, who will join us momentarily. Joe and Becky, I don't know where they are. They're somewhere today, but I'm here. Glad you're here. Thanks for joining us. And the stock market looks like it may have another good start to a week. Oh, Mr. Peters, Mr. Portman, Mr. Reed, Mr. Risch, Mr. Romney, it's Mr. Schumer. Madam Vice President, President. Majority Leader. I know of no further amendments. The title of the bill for the third time. Counter number 464, H.R. 5376, an act to provide for reconciliation. The yeas are 50, the nays are 50. The Senate being equally divided, the vice president votes in the affirmative, and the bill, as amended, is passed. Okay, does anyone notice anything? Yes, sir. This is my lucky blue suit. <laughs> we are elated. Every member of my caucus is elated. Your big story this morning is out of Washington, D.C. Senate's passing what they call the Inflation Reduction Act, basically sort of a build back better too, or the mansion spending bill, whatever you want to call it. A very narrow vote, all the Republicans against, all the Democrats for. Probably not surprising in 2022, but let's get more about what we do know and some very last minute changes. Alon Moy joining us now. And Alon, I guess here's the thing. Bernie Sanders doesn't like it. The oil and gas industry kind of likes it. If everybody's a little bit annoyed, maybe that's a win. Well, I think that the business industry may find some things to quibble with in this bill. But Democrats certainly are celebrating the passage of their health and climate package in the Senate over this past weekend. As you mentioned, there was some last-minute drama leading up to that moment, though. The Senate parliamentarian nixed a provision that would have capped price increases for prescription drugs in the private market, and Republicans successfully fought to exempt private equity from that new 15 percent corporate minimum tax, with backing from vulnerable Democrats like Senators Kirsten Sinema, Raphael Warnock, and Maggie Hassan. 
But the framework of Democrats' proposal remained intact. It allows Medicare to negotiate the price of prescription drugs and caps insulin costs at $35 a month for seniors. It extends Affordable Care Act subsidies and provides new incentives for clean energy. And it establishes a floor on corporate taxes, imposes a new tax on stock buybacks, and invests $80 billion in the IRS. This Senate Democratic majority has achieved what countless others uh, have come to Washington promising to do, but ultimately failed to deliver. And I am really confident that the Inflation Reduction Act will endure as one of the defining feats of the 21st century. Democrats hope it'll at least be a defining feature of the midterm elections. Already, the progressive group Move On is running a six-figure ad campaign in Arizona, Georgia, and Nevada. It also touts the July jobs number and the drop in gas prices. So, Brian, we'll see if Democrats can keep this momentum going all the way through November. Back over to you. Oh, no, we got a lot more to do here. So right now, it's just you and I. We're going to talk for like 35 minutes. All right, so let's jump into a number of provisions here. First off, the Democrats are going to say, and we've got Jared Bernstein coming up a bit later on in the show, and like and respect Jared very much, and he will say there are no new taxes in this bill. And technically, that is true. But with D.C., technicals may not be the thing because they're putting into your point 90 or whatever billion dollars to the IRS. That's going to more than double the number of agents. There'll be more agents than there are rich people. So I've got to assume part of this revenue projection is increased audits, and they're going to have to increase the audits on mostly middle and upper middle class America. Well, that is a point of contention. Certainly Republicans say that that is going to have to be the case simply by the numbers, as you sort of laid out there, Brian. But the IRS and the Treasury Department has been very um, consistent on this and saying their goal is to target higher income uh, people who aren't paying the taxes that they owe. They say that is where the real money is. That is where the tax gap, as they call it, is. And so it makes more sense to invest resources to go after those types of uh, taxpayers. Currently, the IRS being understaffed and without the sort of number of trained enforcers uh, that they need to deal with those types of complex cases, they aren't able to bring that money home in the same way that uh, they have been or they would like to. And so that's why they are saying this money is so critical. But it's also one reason why you're not going to see that payoff. Um, from the IRS enforcement for a couple of years because it does take time to both hire agents, hire enforcers, and then to train them up in order to do the job. Yeah, and I think that point about the revenue projections, deficit reduction things that are sort of in here. The, by the way, both parties do this. A lot of accounting gimmicks in here, and they're going to call it the Inflation Reduction. You could call it the World's Best Coffee Act. I mean, at this point, it's almost like marketing slogans. Some of the stuff, though, that they will point to around Medicare inflation, uh, price controls for Medicare drugs, when do these kick in, Alon? It's not for a couple years, is it? So, so if there are inflation reduction aspects to this, and only time will tell, but if there are, we're talking years out, are we not? Yeah, so that's part of the issue with the name of this bill, the Inflation Reduction Act, is that this is really a timing game, right? So some of the, what Democrats would say were the benefits of the bill would happen immediately for many voters. That is the Affordable Care Act subsidies, which would be extended after they expire at the end of this month. So that happens immediately, but that's a cost to the government, which would then um, drive up inflation because people then have more money to spend, right? So that's the short-term impact. But over the long term, the ability for Medicare to negotiate drug prices doesn't really kick in until 2026. There's a list of 10 drugs that Medicare can begin negotiating with 
um, in that year, and that list increases to 20 drugs by the year 2029. So that sort of cost savings pressure doesn't happen. 2026, 2026. So that cost savings doesn't happen until the back end of the decade. And so that's why you're seeing a difference between the short-term effect of the bill and the long-term effect of the bill, and why over the decade, um, analysts say that this wouldn't really have any impact on inflation and be a wash. But certainly in the short term, Republicans are right. You would see an increase, at least a small one. Well, again, you know, listen, legislate. And again, both parties do it. Legislative names, these laws now, they've, they've taken on a madman aspect from marketing. They just call these. This is basically build back better in sort of a zombified form. There are some things in here that the Build fossil fuel industry <laughs> likes that Bernie Sanders does not like. He tweeted out the other day about how can we give billions of dollars to companies that are basically destroying or you know destroying the planet. There was this last minute permitting deal, was there not, that helped expedite pipeline and some fossil fuel aspects of it that I've seen a lot of angry comments yes. about. Yes, yeah, certainly. That was also key to getting Manchin on board with this deal, right? This sort of side deal around permitting reform uh, that was uh, gave him the confidence to be able to support this deal. He didn't want to just invest in clean energy. He also wanted to increase fossil fuel production, at least in the short term. One key uh, provision of that was getting um, some expedited permitting for that Mountain Valley pipeline in West Virginia. That's something that's big news for his state, something a little bit of pork that he can bring home to his constituents as well and say, hey, I made yeah. a trade. I got something in this bill for my voters in addition to helping the broader Democratic legislative agenda. He didn't go home empty handed here. No, this was a huge win, arguably, for Joe Manchin. We'll see if it's a big win ultimately for, for the Democrats, but for Manchin, uh, certainly getting a lot of what he wanted here. Alon Moy, well, thank you very much. Next on Squawk Pod, Andrew joins Brian. We've got it going on, and we got a lot left to talk about today. And together, they're breaking down the Inflation Reduction Act even further with economist Jared Bernstein, who will join us from the White House North Lawn. This injects fairness into the tax code. Uh, it raises more than what it replaces. It has the potential to actually incentivize more internal investment, something we haven't seen enough of. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Today's anchors are Brian Sullivan. Stand under by. And joining us on assignment via Zoom, we've all been there. Yep, right. Andrew Ross Sorkin. Yep, let's chat it up. All right, good morning and welcome or welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I am Brian Sullivan along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe and Becky are off today. And 
Hey, Andrew, it's you and I together, and stock futures are up. I mean, hey, everything, the sun's coming up. It's all roses. Not bad. Not bad. Not bad at all, Brian. We've, yeah, we've got we it going seeing, on, and we got a lot. Well, we got a lot going, lot to talk about today. Yeah, there's some kind of big Senate bill, right? That 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 may or may not have gotten a little bit of attention this morning. I would imagine that occupied a significant portion of your evening. I heard about that, and we're going to be talking about that in just a little bit from uh, from the White House lawn. I think uh, with Mr. Bernstein, who's going to uh, break down some of the theatrics that took place over the weekend. Well, somebody, we're going to have to have a producer wrangle him because literally I think Jared might be running an actual victory lap. It was a big win for Democrats over the weekend in Congress. The Senate passing a more than $700 billion reduction uh, inflation inflation reduction act. Uh, the bill now moving uh, to the House. Joining us right now to talk about uh, the win for the Biden administration uh, and what it could really mean for inflation and business. White House economist Jared Bernstein, he's a member President's Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, Jared, congratulations to you. I'm sure you were working uh, like crazy with everybody else over the weekend. Uh, let's talk about two issues, and I think people have lots of questions about. One is, does this really do anything to bring down inflation? And two, what does it really mean long-term to the degree you think it benefits business? I would ask you how. Okay, uh, pardon the lawnmower in the back. She always gets started every time I talk to you, to you folks. Um, so first of all, let me just uh, correct something. Um, yes, no question. Probably correct is too strong a word. Uh, you're right. Big win for the president of the White House, congressional Democrats. Much, much bigger win for the American people. That's really where the Inflation Reduction Act uh, hits the road. And, and, and very much in the spirit of your questions, which, which I'll get to, including inflation reduction. But when you're talking about lowering the cost of health care for seniors, capping expenditures that can be 10,000 a year for someone who's dealing with a, a tragic illness like cancer at 2,000 a year. When you're talking about helping people significantly cut the cost of purchasing everything from clean energy renewables to electric vehicles, standing up uh, the most, uh, the deepest investment in renewables and clean energy, uh, both in terms of manufacturing and in terms of, again, uh, individual purchases of everything from uh, solar panels to wind to uh, heat pumps, you're, you're talking about a measure that's going to significantly reduce costs in some areas where family budgets really pinch. So yes on inflation, more so yes on a big win for the American people. Well, let's talk about the impact on business. Uh, there is this 15% minimum tax. There's also uh, this issue about uh, a 1% tax on buybacks. Uh, which was added in place of uh, the carried interest piece of it. Well, let, let's go to the carried interest piece first. Can you explain who got to, to, to Senator Cinema and what that was about? Yeah, I, I wouldn't have the answer to a question like that. Uh, there are people who are probably tracking uh, the negotiations closer than I. Uh, I'm here to do economic policy analysis. Uh, and let me tell you a little bit about that. So what came out, the carried interest, uh, closing that loophole, uh, something the president has always called for, uh, that was a, a $14 billion score over 10 years. That is, it reduced the uh, deficit by $14 billion. What went in, uh, the 1% uh, excise tax on buybacks, reduced the deficit by $74 billion over 10 years. So in, in a sense, uh, in a very real sense, um, more deficit reduction there, which, by the way, gets back to your first question. Uh, the deficit reduction, much of which is front-loaded in this bill, is very much disinflationary. Do you have any concerns when it comes to the issue of buybacks? Um, and I, 
I know we've had debates about whether they should be taxed uh, or shouldn't be taxed, but there is an argument to be made that you're going to see executives, you're going to see a couple of things. I think there's an expectation you're going to see a lot of buybacks this year to get ahead of that. I don't know if you think that's a good or bad thing. Maybe if the stock market's down, people, stock uh, companies are going to buy their stock for cheap, and that's good. Uh, on the flip side, um, executives oftentimes paid with stock uh, gives them skin in the game. One of the reasons they buy back stock is to prevent dilution. That may may, may dissipate a bit. Do you have any concerns about sort of um, un unexpected exogenous things taking place as a result of this? Yeah, I think they can go uh, uh, another way as well, which I'll get to in a second, which is potentially uh, more um, uh, retained earnings, greater investment, which ultimately would actually boost the value of companies. <clears throat> uh, let me point out this by starting with, you know, Jared's first rule of uh, tax avoidance, which is if one type uh, of a, uh, a payout is favored over another, uh, tax-wise, you can bet that everybody with a tax lawyer is going to go for that type. And the fact that um, buybacks are treated differently in the stack, uh, tax code uh, than dividends uh, uh, creates a, a distortive incentive that has been uh, really um, overly taken advantage of in recent years. You know, uh, after the first year of the uh, Republican tax cut, uh, buybacks amounted to something like a trillion dollars, and we saw a negative impact on uh, corporate investment. Uh, so uh, this tax not only injects fairness into the tax code, uh, it raises more than what it replaces. It has the potential to actually incentivize more internal investment, something we haven't seen enough of. So I think the, uh, I think the incentives point in the, in the right direction and also, once again, disinflationary in terms of deficit reduction. Jared, hi, it's Brian. Listen, I, 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 the, some of the front-loaded deficit stuff, I get it, but you'll color me a little bit cynical only because the U.S. national deficit is now, or debt is $30 trillion, and it's gone up under Republicans, Democrats, doesn't matter who it is, politicians spend, that's, that's what they do. Um, that said, that said, how much of this is going to be just IRS tax collection? They want to double the size of the IRS. I understand the industry has been shrunk, gutted, some people's words. Um, and do you expect increased audits on the middle class? Uh, certainly not on the middle class. Uh, remember, uh, one of the lines in the sand for all his flexibility, and you don't get to this kind of a, a deal in the Senate without being politically flexible, uh, President Biden has always maintained uh, that no one under 400000 will pay one penny more in taxes. So line in the sand there. Look, uh, in terms of closing the tax gap, that's what you're talking about here, something like $80 billion for the IRS. Uh, this uh, raises um, something like $200 billion over 10 years, and some people call that a conservative estimate. And remember, this is uh, enforcing taxes owed. So this is a way to not just close tax loopholes, but to stave off tax evasion. In my strongly held view, defunding the IRS has been a long-term shadow tax cut for tax evaders, and this president will reverse that uh, with this bill that now goes over to the House. And much of those are going to be small businesses, Jared, that people use S-Corps. Yeah, well, remember, 400000 in the sand. Just like people, I've heard people talk about small business on the minimum so corporate is, tax. I want to be clear. Wait a second. The president you don't pay the minimum. Hold on, wait a second. Under 4, you don't pay. Correct. No, 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 no. That's not what I said. Nobody under $400,000 will pay higher taxes under the Inflation Reduction Act. Let's be very clear about that. And look, you talk about small businesses. 
the minimum corporate tax kicks in at over $1 billion in profits over the past three years, averaging over the past three years. Now, uh, if you have two, three, five employees, but your profits are a billion dollars, yeah, uh, you will face the, the corporate minimum tax of 15%. I'm not the, talking many about, of the, I'm not, many you're of these conflating two issues, pay. Jared. You're conflating two issues. I'm talking about small businesses that are S-corps or family, you know, not hedge fund managers. I'm talking about, okay. you know, so they, they if we're doubling the size of the IRS, then who are they going to go after? Well, first of all, uh, good point, because uh, the S-corps uh, typically pass through their taxes to the individual side of the code. So that my point was that let's talk about businesses by their profitability. Nobody under 400K, whether you're a small business or an individual, pays a penny more in taxes. I want to talk about something else, though, Brian. You talked about deficit reduction. One of the best ways to reduce the deficit is to grow the economy more quickly. Now, deficit reduction over the past year has been 1.7 trillion. Okay, that's on the books. Now, some of that comes from fiscal policy fading off in the way we've been discussing. But actually, receipts in percentage terms are up more than spending was down in percentage terms. Strong economies yield higher tax receipts. A lot of sales and taxes. By, Everybody's by, buying their new cars and their boats, Jared. You know that. I mean, that's... that's. It's. And by investing and standing up uh, a clean energy industry, manufacturing, uh, as, the, as, as the act does, that's going to generate more economic growth, spin off more revenues. Now, you mentioned um, tax credits. Very much in the bill, the bill reduces the deficit by 300 billion over 10 years. So you have to net out those credits against uh, the tax increases. And you only get an electric car, the, and you get an electric car. Andrew, we can finally get that uh, the Hyundai Ionic that I've been looking at. Jared, th thank you very much. Jared Bernstein. Thank you. Congratulations, by the way. Thank you. Cheese will be next. Coming up on Squawk Pod, workers returning to physical office spaces. What happens when they want to negotiate? Jason Greer, he is known as the employee whisperer, offers some advice. Executives are not going to tell you this. Companies are not going to tell you this. They don't want to lose you, especially in today's market, because they don't want you to pull LeBron James and take your talent somewhere else. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Here's Brian Sullivan. All right, now, let's turn to a topic that is getting a lot of attention, not just at work, but probably at your dining room table. Management says it is time to come back to the office, so maybe you don't want to go. Maybe you've moved. What do you do, and how do you have the tough conversations that you may need now to have? Your next guest says there are ways to ask what you want without turning your company off. Joining us now to talk about it is... Sadal Neely, Harvard Business School professor and author of Remote Work Revolution and Greer Consulting founder and president, Jason Greer. All right, this, I, th I mean, honestly, Sadal and Jason, we could do the whole show, I think, on just this. We might, actually, on just Absolutely. this topic. Uh, there are companies, uh, some of whom I may work for, that have said to people, 
you need to be back in the office after Labor Day, three days a week, five days a week. A lot of Wall Street's already back, but for the majority of Americans in big cities, especially on the coast, they've got some optionality. So, Sadal, let's say your boss says you're back at work five days a week. You've, your life has changed the last two years. You've got young kids at home, whatever it may be. How do you begin this stressful and difficult conversation slash negotiation. Huge topic today. Great to see you this morning, Brian. First of all, we have to make sure that this is not seen as an adversarial act. Instead, it should be a conversation that is mutually beneficial. And managers should not be surprised by now what people's preferences are, what people's needs and changes are. So how do you meet halfway is the key point here. And if we don't treat this as a perk, then we think about a conversation that looks at how do we maximize individual work? How do we maximize teamwork? Meaning, how do we come into the office in person for collaboration efforts? How do we make sure that we are actually advancing the goals of our group, not just us as individuals, through our in-person presence? So it becomes a conversation uh, that is mutually beneficial. But you know, remote work is a tool. Hybrid work is a tool. In-person work is a tool. The office is a tool. So how do we do this is the thing that we need to figure out with our managers. The problem is, Jason, is that everybody's situation is differently. I mean, different. Exactly. Maybe you're single, live alone. Maybe you want to go back to the office. Maybe you've got young children and now you don't have childcare because all the babysitters have quit or daycare is full. Maybe you're a 55-year-old middle manager who does not care about advancing. You, don't, you just want to keep your job. How, what's the first line of the conversation? How do you even broach the subject with your boss? I think the first thing is to be honest. Understand this, especially in today's market, it's an employee-driven market. Your employer doesn't want to lose you. So be honest, but before you go into that conversation, have a game plan. Understand what your schedule looks like and be able to chart how productive you've been from home versus being in the office. Show them proof of your home office but it really comes back to the fact of being honest because executives are not going to tell you this. Companies are not going to tell you this. They don't want to lose you, especially in today's market, because they don't want you to pull LeBron James and take your talent somewhere else. So they're going to meet you halfway because they need you more than you need them. Well, a lot of people have taken their talents to South Beach, by the way, based on the Florida <laughs> job market, Jason. Let, let's, 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 uh, let's, I'm going to stay with you. And I want, we have a lot of CEOs that watch this show, so I just want them to tune out, right, or cover their ears, uh, because I'm gonna say something they probably would hate or disagree with, but let's be honest. How much of this has to do with just real estate? It's not about productivity. You can make all the doggone arguments you want about how productive you are, but they're sitting on a billion dollars in real estate with a 20-year yes. contract that they yes. can't get out of. There's more to this than just, you know, how productive you are at home. Well, I think you hit it right on the head. It's about the real estate, but it's also about sort of this old school mentality of you're only productive if you're in the office, if I can see you. The reality is the game has changed. COVID changed. Technology has changed to the point where people have the opportunity to still contribute, even if they're not physically there. But I think it does come down to the real estate, but it also comes down to the psychological game of if I can't see you, are you really part of the office? And here's the other thing, Sadal. Like, I don't know where you are physically, but if anybody that's around the New York area that's watching or listening right now knows this to be true, pretty much doesn't, if you're in the city or in the city, if you're out of the city, 
doesn't matter if you're five miles out the Hudson or 50. It's an hour to an hour and a half each way in and out of New York City. I mean, it doesn't matter where you live. You're on the train. You drive. You park. You take the bus to the Port Authority. That's wasted time. It's also really expensive. Working from home has given people de facto big-time raises and part of their life back. Is it worth it if your boss really pushes back to say, I might be willing to sacrifice certain monetary benefits for this, or no, never do that? You know, there have been plenty of surveys taken in the last year where people have said they will forego the dollars for the quality yes. of life that they've gained. They've also discovered just a new way of working, like you said, that gives them work-life flexibility or work-life integration in ways that they've never seen before. And so um, we have seen where people have said that they will change jobs, they will take less pay in order to have some remote work into their work arrangements. But the thing that you said earlier, though, is key. It has to be a meeting of uh, halfway because you need some in-person and in-office presence to ensure that culture and other things that people, CEOs worry about, in addition to real estate, are moving the identity, the brand of the company. And so the 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 lifestyle has been big. And then there's one more thing that's incredibly important. The last couple of years, companies have waged the diversity flag, or what they call DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion, in ways that we hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And when you survey women, people of color, people with different abilities, they will disproportionately prefer some remote work into their uh, work arrangements. And so it is a powerful tool to say, in order for us to advance our DEI, we need to make sure that we also become progressive without work. Or but humans, I mean, Jason, humans, humans matter. Human relationships, Absolutely. I mean, respect, trust, kindness. You don't get that over Zoom. You do. But you don't necessarily, but here's the thing. In the 20th century, we can make that argument because this technology didn't exist. People are in front of their screens more than they ever have been before. So yeah. we're still finding a way to have some type of interconnectivity. Well, but at the same we're, time, it, We're doing it now, and I'm getting yelled at to wrap up the segment. I'll tell you this, Sadal (laughs) Neely and Jason Greer, let's have dinner in person. I love it. Let's do it. Let's do it. And then we'll do this again, but then we have the actual relationship. We'll see. All right, guys, great discussion. Big topic. Thank you. That is Squawk Pod for today. Thanks, as always, for listening and for starting your week with us and for dealing with lawnmowers and spotty internet connections and everything else we throw at your ears. It is an honor to be a part of your listening habits. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and follow Squawk Pod to listen anytime. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.